0: We want to get some time in, in God's Word. Um, so, uh, as many of y'all know, I like comics. Um, and I like Marvel comics, but there's also another comic that I would say is even better than Marvel comics, which is hard to believe. Um, and that's Calvin and Hobbes. So, have any Calvin and Hobbes fans out here? Okay, well, there should be a lot more. Y'all, if y'all haven't read Calvin and Hobbes, you need to read some more Calvin and Hobbes. It's probably my favorite comic. I've read every single comic strip in it. I own all the books. You can start quoting any panel and I can finish the whole panel for you. Um, And if you don't know anything about Calvin and Hobbes, it's basically a story about a little boy named Calvin and his stuffed tiger, who's imaginary but kind of becomes real um, when Calvin's playing with him, named Hobbes. And they have all kinds of fun adventures, and I love them because they're really humorous, um, but I also love them because they have some really powerful and poignant things um, that they point out. Bill Watterson's the, the author of them. And so I wanna share uh, one of the Calvin and Hobbes, and um, it's a kind of a, a couple strips. It's the Calvin and Hobbes where he deals with the raccoon. And so Calvin's the little boy there and Hobbes is the, the tiger. And so Calvin says um, to Hobbes, look, there's a little raccoon on the ground. And Hobbes says, is it alive? And Calvin responds, I think so, but he's hurt. See, he's hardly breathing. Hobbes says, better not touch him if he's hurt. And Calvin responds, yeah, you wait here and guard him. I'll run and get mom. And Hobbes says, I sure hope she can help. And Calvin's response is, of course she can. You don't get to be mom if you can't fix everything just right. (laughs) There's a lot of moms out there that know and recognize that. So anyways, I'm not gonna read the whole story, but basically they bring this little hurt raccoon to mom and hope that mom is able to fix everything. Unfortunately, mom isn't able to. Um, and the raccoon ends up dying just a couple days later. And so what happens, is you see Calvin, this six or seven year old boy, start to wrestle with death. This is the first time he's experienced death. And I think that the way Bill Watterson, the author, talks about it is really profound, and he, he gets at some things. And so uh, Calvin is up late one night talking with Hobbes, and he says, you know Hobbes, I can't figure out this death stuff. Why did that little rock- raccoon have to die? He didn't do anything wrong. He was just little. What's the point of putting him here and taking him back so soon? It's either really mean or it's really arbitrary. And either way, I've got the heebie-jeebies. And Hobbes says, we shouldn't talk about this at night. Um, And later, he's wrestling through it a little bit again, and this is one of the latter panels where uh, Calvin, you can see he's been crying, says, this is where dad buried the little raccoon. I I didn't even know he existed a few days ago, and now he's gone forever. It's like I found him for no reason, and I had to say goodbye as soon as I said hello. Still, in a sad, awful, terrible way, I'm happy I met him. What a stupid world. Now, I share that because I think he gets at some points and some things that we interact with when we deal with death. He talks about how he doesn't understand why this little raccoon would be here for so short of a time and then die. It doesn't make sense. And many of us have probably felt something similar, wondering why somebody had to die. Um, We feel that pain, we feel that sadness, and yet we also feel this mixed emotion of being happy to have known them, but sad that they're gone. And Calvin's conclusion is, what a stupid world, Um, This morning, I wanna look at death and look at it according to the scripture because I think Calvin's response maybe gets at a little bit about what's going on. He understands that death doesn't make sense, but he doesn't fall at the place that scripture falls when we interact with death, and I want us to think and actually honestly process through death, and so um, this morning, we're gonna talk about that. The sermon title is Love and Death. Um, And it's gonna be in John chapter 11. You can go and turn there right now. John chapter 11, talking about love and death. And what I wanna talk about is this question of how do love and death go together? Honestly, we as a culture don't really like talking about death. We have a lot of euphemisms for for death. So rather than saying someone died, we say that someone passed away. Or if they're a believer, we say they went to heaven because we don't wanna say that they actually died. in fact, Maybe many of us may have not actually seen somebody die. We often see them die in the hospital rather than in the home. And we've kind of farmed off the process of death to professionals. Um, You know, in the 21st century, not as many of us have seen someone die in their own homes where before the 20th century, a lot of people would have seen somebody die in their own homes. Would have been a typical experience. But we don't like death, we don't like talking about death. Even as I'm ready to preach a whole sermon on death, I feel a little bit nervous talking to y'all about this because it's something that's uncomfortable and I think it's something that's really important. And this question about how do we work with love and death together specifically when it comes to God I think is really important. This is the problem of evil. This is the problem of suffering. This is the problem of death. And the way it's generally brought out is to say this, well if God really is all powerful, then he could stop death. He could stop suffering. He could stop evil, right? And if God is all-loving, then He would want to stop death. He would want to stop suffering. He would want to stop evil. And yet, all of us have experienced in some way evil or suffering, and maybe even death. So the question is, is God not all-powerful? Or is God not all-loving? And the question I wanna wrestle with this morning is how do we reconcile death with the love of God, specifically? And so we're going to do this in John chapter 11, and and I'll be transparent with you and say, this is going to be a heavy message. Um, And I want to encourage you not to check out, um, because I think if you haven't experienced the pain of death yourself, chances are there's somebody sitting right next to you that is very aware of the pain of death, that has lost somebody that they loved. And if it's not somebody sitting next to you, all of us in some way will eventually have to deal with death, whether it's the death of a pet like the raccoon in Calvin and Hobbes, was the death of somebody you loved, a sibling, a parent, a child, a friend. And so I'll be transparent and say that this week has been hard for me. Um, so uh, I wasn't really planning, I didn't plan out when I was gonna preach this. Paul and I kind of processed through our sermons a couple of months in advance and we decided what we're gonna do and I already had planned out all the texts. But it just so happened that this week I would be teaching on John chapter 11 about Lazarus and about death and love. And if I'm transparent with you, this week has been difficult for me because last week was Father's Day. Um, And every Father's Day I'm reminded that my dad is no longer alive. In fact, um, just this last year, it's been more years that I've been without my dad than there have been with him on earth. He died when when I was a senior in high school. Um, And then Tuesday marks five years from when my older sister Christina died from cancer as well. And then Wednesday was my dad's birthday. So I have this trifecta every year to remind myself of the reality of death. And then God sort of planned it to where on this week, I'm going to be preaching on John chapter 11, which is all about death. Um, And so this is really personal to me. And I want to share kind of really candidly and transparently with you about how death has affected me. And I do that because I want you to see that I'm wrestling with some things as well. But I, as a pastor, don't have everything all sorted out. There's times that I wrestle with God and I wrestle with how God can be loving in the light of death as I deal with that each year. And I want you to see that that's normal and natural and that God is not surprised by that. Um, And I want to invite you into that as we process through this. So um, there's a lot to cover in John chapter 11. I'm not going to be able to go through it all, but I want to trace this theme of love and death through the passage and talk uh, openly about how it's affected me specifically. So if you will start in John chapter 11, we'll start in verse one and there's so much here, I'm not gonna be able to comment on everything but I think it's important that we read through the whole passage because we'll miss some things and you'll see that at the end if we don't do that. So John 11 verse one. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was, Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now already in this passage, you start to see Look for these words repeated, love and death, and you'll see them show up already in this passage, right in the beginning. In fact, when uh, this messenger comes uh, in verse three, the sisters sent this messenger and they say, not Lazarus is dying, but he whom you love is ill. The way that he's referred to as the one that Jesus loves. And then if you jump down into verse five, again, John says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And there's this repetition of Jesus loves these people. Jesus loves Lazarus, but also Jesus loves his sisters. And it seems to make sense that he's repeating this, but I think one of the reasons is because in verse six, we get a little confused. If Jesus really loves Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and if Lazarus is the one whom Jesus loves and is ill, verse six doesn't really make sense, right? So, so when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, when someone is sick, do you stay and wait around or you do go and visit them? And so uh, we, we kind of get into this and it makes me think of this time when I was um, working for American Airlines and so I got to fly overseas a lot and I was able to go to Europe. And this one time I went to um, Scotland, I had a friend who was studying in Glasgow, and we went to go hike in the Scottish Highlands. And we, um, I flew over, picked him up from Glasgow, and we drove up to the Highlands, and I went up to the Isle of Skye, which is just a beautiful, gorgeous place if you ever have a chance to go there. And we were hiking up on this Monroe, this mountain, and we kind of camped there. And so for a couple of days we didn't have any service. And one night we kind of got sick of camp food. So we decided we were gonna go down and eat some actual food at a restaurant. Um, And so we go and it was maybe eight or nine in the evening. And up to this point, we hadn't had any service on our phones. We were out kind of in the wilderness camping on our own. And so as I came down, I started to get some messages from back home. And at this point, my sister had been diagnosed with cancer a couple months earlier. And I got some messages saying that she was sick and was in the ER. And I remember texting her, actually went back and was rereading these on Tuesday, texting back and forth with her, and she was saying, I'm fine, you don't need to come, Jason, don't worry about it. But I talked with my friend and I just wrestled and I was, I was supposed to stay there, I think about a day or two more before I had to go back and work. And I just felt like, my sister's sick, there's no way I can feel okay being in Scotland, especially not having any service for a couple more days. And so I, literally that night, we packed up our tent, I drove all the way down to Glasgow, dropped him off, drove back over to Edinburgh, got on the first flight to where I was back home the next day. I just couldn't imagine staying and waiting for two days. Cause that's what you do when you love someone, right? So why in the world, when Jesus hears that someone is sick, someone who he loves, does he wait for two days? Do I love my sister more than Jesus loved Lazarus? I don't think so. So we have to start wrestling with this, and the first question that I want us to wrestle with as we wrestle with this passage is, does God love me even when he waits? Does God love me even when he waits two days before going and seeing somebody he loves? It's almost as if John has to remind the readers in verse five, now, don't forget, Jesus loves Martha and his sister and Lazarus because him waiting two days doesn't seem to make sense. And, and I don't have a good answer for why Jesus waited. It's a couple different ideas. Um, some people think that Jesus waited because Lazarus was already dead. Um, we'll, we'll learn later that Lazarus is dead for four days by the time Jesus gets there. And Jesus is across the Jordan and he has to go to Bethany to Ju- in Judea. And so at some places that's about a day's journey. And so what they would say is that the messenger you know, Lazarus was sick, and he went a day's journey. Jesus waited two days, and then he went a day's journey to get back to Lazarus, and that accounts for the four days. So Jesus knew that Lazarus was already dead, and it wouldn't make any difference for him to go two days earlier. Now, that's kind of the traditional interpretation. I actually disagree with that, and, and one of the top scholars on John, the Carson, says he thinks it actually took four days to get to Lazarus, that Jesus was four days journey away. Um, And he says this, and I agree with him, because of verse four. Um, In verse four, Jesus, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, he's kind of talking about a bigger picture that in the end, ultimately he knows he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead, so it's not gonna lead to death, but he's also talking as if Lazarus, Lazarus is not dead yet. And if you go down a couple more verses, in verse 11, after he waiting for two days, he says, after saying these things, Jesus said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And later he specifically says he's dead. So I think what's more accurate is that Lazarus was still alive when he comes, and it takes four days for Jesus to get to Lazarus. So as soon as he realizes Lazarus is dead, he goes to meet with Lazarus. But the question still comes up, why in the world does he wait two days? Why doesn't Jesus just heal them right away? You know, if you read the other gospels, there's times when Jesus has healed people without even having to go to them. So Jesus could heal Lazarus without even having to make that four day trek or one day trek, whichever one it is. Why in the world doesn't Jesus do it? And even if if he wasn't doing that, why doesn't he go and mourn with Mary and Martha and Lazarus? So the question is, does God really love me even when he's wait? when he's waiting. And we've probably all in some ways experienced that. Maybe you've wanted God to do something for you. You've prayed fervently and maybe it was that someone would live and maybe it was for something that you think was really important that you needed and God seems to just be waiting. And you wonder why God aren't you coming and doing something soon? Or maybe we feel the pain and, and, and hurt of death and we say God why have you not come back to make all things new? It's an author that I love named um, Nicholas Wolterstorff. He's a, a philosopher and a theologian. and He wrote a book called Lament for a Son. Um, and his son died in a mountaineering accident. And this book is him essentially weeping and lamenting through it. And in that, he's talking about knowing that Jesus raised his son to new life. And he says, I know, I know, but why don't you raise my son now? Why did you ever let him die? If creation took just six days, why does recreation take so agonizingly long? If your conquest, God of primeval chaos, went so quickly, why must your conquest of sin and death and suffering be so achingly slow? This is a man who's writing out of his grief of losing his son, which I can't imagine what that feels like. But maybe we have the same question. How can God love us when he still allows death and hurt and pain and suffering still go on? How can Jesus wait for two days when Lazarus, the person he loves, is ill? Why doesn't he leave right away, and why doesn't he heal them? I wanna keep going in this passage, but I want you to hold that in your your heart as we wrestle with this, because I think the passage, John 11, helps us walk through this, and what he's gonna do is he's gonna interact with three different people. Next, he's gonna interact with Martha, he's gonna interact with Mary, and he's gonna interact with Lazarus. And in each way, he interacts in a different way, and I want us to to look at and process through this and ask some some questions as well. So the next question as he interacts with Martha is, does God love me even with my questions? Or, Or maybe, does God love me even when I have, or I think I have the right answers? Look at verse 17. God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. And so notice how he interacts with Martha. Um, Now Martha comes up to him and she says, "'Lord, if you had been here, "'my brother would not have died.'" In the Greek, that's a second-class conditional, And, and another way of translating it might have been, "'Lord, you should have been here.'" She's very aware that Jesus has healed people, that Jesus could have healed Lazarus, and so she's pleading with him, "'You should have been here, Jesus.'" But notice what she says right after that in verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I think she's kind of tempering this with the question. She's almost underhandedly asking, hey, you can still do something, God. And she's falling back on her theology that says, God, I know, I know you. that God listens to you and you could ask him whatever and he'll do whatever you want him to. And so they have almost kind of a theology discussion So Jesus responds and says, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know, I know my theology. Verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now for Jews, there was a common understanding among most of them that there would be a resurrection on the last day. There's a final resurrection. Some will be raised to life and some will be raised to punishment. And so this is a common idea. The only Jews that didn't believe this are the Sadducees. So you can tell they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. It's an easy way that my dad taught me to remember that. But most everyone, the Jews, believes in the resurrection. And so she's saying, Jesus, why are you giving me a, a, a theology lesson? I don't need a theology lesson. I already know the theology. But Jesus is trying to help her see she doesn't actually know what she's talking about. That she understands maybe some part of theology. Yes, there will be a resurrection kind of in the last day, but Jesus is going to challenge her and point her to something different. In verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And this is one of the uh, I am statements that, uh, that Tom was talking about. There's seven of them. This is the fifth one where Jesus says, I am the resurrection. It's a profound thing that he's talking about because Martha, understands, in general, the resurrection, but she doesn't understand that it's not just some resurrection that happens way back there, but that resurrection and who Jesus is as the resurrection in life actually transforms what happens right now. And so, the way Jesus responds to Martha is responding with a kind of discussion of theology, and as I listen to this passage and I, I process through it, I think of it in the same way that I responded to my dad when he died. My dad died when I was 17, a senior in high school. Um, And the day that he died, I actually didn't cry. Um, So this is a photo of my dad, one of the last photos that I have with my mom. Um, And he fought cancer for a long time, but ended up dying. Um, And I remember, like I said, the day he passed away, I didn't cry. I remember my mom and my sisters, my two sisters, just weeping and wailing and sobbing. I can still remember their voices in my head. I can still remember it like it was yesterday. But for some reason, I didn't cry. In fact, I had a basketball game, I, I was playing in a basketball game, and I went to my basketball game that night, the night my dad died. And my coach and all my friends were like, why in the world are you trying to play in a basketball game the day your dad died? But I wanted things to just be normal. In fact, I didn't cry until my, the day of my dad's funeral. And, and for a while, quite a time after that, I didn't cry very often. I kinda stuffed down my grief and what I think happened is I was trying to hold on to this theological belief that I knew that God was able to work good out of the difficult things. I knew that my dad was in a better place and I could see how God was using this and so I just clung to that and I thought I had to be strong. I had to be strong for my mom and my sister um, and my brother and I were the only men in the house and so we thought we had to kinda, you know, trust trust what we know and believe in theology. And I think that at that point I needed to have a discussion with Jesus very much like Jesus had with Martha, where he reminded me um, about who the resurrection is. And I, I could tell, I knew from my theology that my dad was in a better place and that he was gonna be raised on the last day, but I didn't really think how that affected me right then. And so Jesus comes to Mary, or to Martha, and he meets her exactly where she is and where she needs to be. And I can look back and see how Jesus met me where I, he needed to meet me with my dad. And he met me with truth and reminded me of who my dad was and his relationship to him. Um, but I wanna keep going and look at one other question um, and that is, or a couple more questions actually, does God love me even when I'm sad? And this is how Jesus interacts with Mary. Look at verse 28 where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So in John chapter nine, just a couple chapters ago, Jesus had just healed a blind man, and so the Jews are wrestling with the same question. If Jesus really loves him, if this is the demonstration of how much he loves Lazarus, why couldn't he have healed them? This question of, of love and death comes up, but the question is, does God still love me even when I'm sad? What we see here is uh, Mary responds very different than Martha. Uh, Mary is almost inconsolable, um, and she's at her house and she's mourning, and she has all these Jews around who, who are mourning, who are consoling, him, consoling her. And it says in verse 33 that they were weeping. And the word that's used there of the weeping, um, some translations say sobbing. It's a, a good way of translating it's an uncontrollable mourning. And you can see this because when she comes up to Jesus, she says the exact same thing that Martha says, but she can't even get past the first sentence. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's the exact same in the Greek and also in the English. But Martha says, I know the theology. I know that you can ask anything of God and he'll give it to you. Mary can't even say that. She falls on her knees and she's just overly distraught. And what you see is there's there's people around who are mourning as well and weeping. In this culture, um, it's pretty common for them to have other people come and mourn and weep together. Um, In fact, if you were wealthy, you would hire professional mourners, professional wailers. um, And they would come and they would demonstrate how sad they are. Um, And when I think about this passage, when I think about Mary, I think about how I responded to my sister's death. With my dad, I didn't cry at all. There weren't any tears even until um, the funeral day. But with my sister, it was very different. It was very much like with Mary. I remember crying uncontrollably when I found out that she passed away. And part of that was because she was much younger. She was 33 years old. Um, And so um, she fought cancer for eight months. My dad had fought it for a lot longer and was a lot older. Um, Here's a photo of my sister, one of the last photos I have with her. This is actually when I come back from Scotland, and this was her in the hospital when she was in the ER. She was later re- released from that. Um, but she, uh, we were playing one of our favorite games, which is uh, Dominion. Um, and so uh, when I think about that, I think about how just guilt-stricken and sobbing I was. I was so sad. I couldn't even in- interact with God. And I remember honestly being angry with God and being frustrated with him. And what I love is the way that Jesus responds to Mary just the way that she needs to be responded to. Because when Martha says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, and starts talking about theology, he responds with some truth, but with Mary, he responds very differently. She comes and falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so how Jesus responds to Mary is with tears. In a sense, in this culture, um, when you would have lost somebody that you loved, you were supposed to do what's called sitting Shiva. What that means is you're supposed to, for seven days, the Hebrew word Shiva means seven, you are supposed to mourn the person that you lost. And people are supposed to come and they're supposed to sit Shiva with you and mourn alongside of you. Um, And so you can tell that there are Jews who are kind of following Mary around, just weeping and mourning and sobbing. And so Jesus has come to sit Shiva with her. He has come to mourn as well, but I want you to notice that there's something uniquely different about his mourning. Actually, before I go to that, I want to point out and recognize this. I love this passage because it reminds me of this. For the Christian, grief is not something that is unnatural. God knows that we are people who are going to be wrestling with death. If he didn't, Jesus could have showed up and just said, Mary, come on, don't you realize I'm about to raise this person to new life? Or don't you realize that one day everything's gonna be all better? Just suck it up, you shouldn't be crying, you shouldn't be sobbing or mourning. Jesus could have responded like that. Um, In fact, there's an author named Alexander Schmemann who talks about this in a book called O Death, Where Is Thy Sting? And he notes that Christ weeps at the grave of his dead friend Lazarus. What a powerful witness. But Christ does not say, well, now he is in heaven. Everything is well. He is separated from this difficult and tormented life. Christ does not say all those things we do in our pathetic and uncomforting attempts to console. In fact, he says nothing. He weeps. With, with Martha, he responds with some truth that she needed in theology. With Mary, he responds with tears. And we in the church need to realize this and recognize this. Oftentimes, we come to some people trying to think to bring the theology that they need to recognize as they're in the midst of their grief. And I can tell you, as someone who's really grieved two people that I love, I've had people come and try to comfort me and be sorry comforters because they thought I needed theology when what I needed was tears. I think we can learn a little bit from Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, when you come and sit Shiva with someone, you are actually not allowed to say anything to the person who is grieving until they speak first. It's a good practice. Now, Hear me, there's times when people need to hear the truth and they need to hear theology and they need to be brought out of their uncontrollable sobbing and their grieving. But not until you've had the time of tears with them, not until you've mourned with them, not until you sat with them in their mourning. And Jesus shows us powerfully, even as he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he still cries and still mourns with them. And he shows us that it's okay for us as Christians to wrestle with death, to not be able to make sense of it sometimes. And since he baptizes it with his tears, and yet I want you to notice something that's unique about his tears, and unfortunately you don't see it in the translations. In the Greek, every time it talks about the Jews or Mary weeping, um, a translation probably could be sobbing, uncontrollable sobbing. But the word in verse 35 where it says Jesus wept is actually a different word in Greek. It's a word that that we get the word for tears from, or that they, they used to talk about tears. And so while Mary and Martha are uncontrollably weeping, they are sobbing, Jesus has tears. What that shows is that he recognizes the pain of death, but he doesn't weep as someone who doesn't have any hope. And this is how we as Christians should be mourning, not uncontrollably, and there's times for that. But recognizing that there is life and hope in the resurrection, and Jesus shows us that really powerfully here. He responds with tears. Um, The last person I want to interact with is in verse 38, and that's Lazarus. And the question I want to ask is, Does God love me even when I stink of death? Does God love me even when I stink of death? Now verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Now Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, "'Unbind him and let him go.'" Now, we don't know a lot about Lazarus. Some people try to connect Lazarus to Lazarus in Luke 16. There's a story Jesus tells about another Lazarus and there's a connection in there with resurrection. But the truth is we don't know if those are the same Lazarus. In all the other gospels, Jesus has raised somebody from the dead, but in John's gospel, Lazarus is the only one he does that for. Um, And this is the only place where this account of Lazarus being raised to new life is from. Um, The word Lazarus is a shortened form of Eliezer, which means the one whom God helps, which is profound. Uh, But in this culture, when someone dies, you would bury them the very first day. Um, And you see this in verse uh, 39, or actually, yeah, verse 39. Um, Jesus is about to try to roll the stone away, and Martha says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. The reason you bury somebody in a hot climate is because they start to smell after a couple days. In fact, in Jewish culture, we know from some later Jewish rabbinic documents that the Jews believed in general that after three days, the spirit would kind of hang around somebody who was dead. But on the fourth day, the body would be so disfigured and decomposed that the spirit would kind of go away. And so that's why I think this is mentioned twice that, Jesus, or that Lazarus was, was um, dead and buried for four days. It's demonstrating Lazarus was really, really dead. So this would have been an actual resurrection for any Jew that was worried or concerned about this. But Jesus addresses Lazarus, and in some senses because we don't know a lot about about Lazarus, I think we can all maybe identify with Lazarus in some way. Maybe you identify with with Lazarus as you think about death, having gone through something difficult. When I think of Lazarus, the way that I kind of identify with him is I've been through some experiences that have got me really, really close to death. Oh, actually, sorry, I'm way, I forgot about this. This is one of Jesus's seven signs. Um, People order them differently. Um, I think this is the sixth sign and the final sign, the kind of crowning sign of the seven signs is resurrection. Some people will say this is the seventh sign. Um, But uh, when I think about Lazarus and I think about death, I think about my own experience with death. So this is a photo of me um, in Christmas, shortly after my sister died in June. And... um, That's uh, my sister's youngest daughter, Brooklyn. And so this is at Christmas. And this was, you can tell, I I didn't just uh, mess up with the razor. Um, This was after I'd been through about six cycles of chemo. And that was the closest I've ever come to death. There was a time or two that I think I was actually pretty close to death and probably could have died. And when I think about this, the idea of wrestling with death and the feeling of death and identifying with Lazarus is very real to me. I get six month scans every year to see if my tumor has come back. And I'm reminded of the fact that death is not too far off for me. And I know there's people in this church that are dealing with cancer or dealing with illness and dealing with the fact that they may die someday soon. And maybe for you it's not an illness that you've experienced, but maybe it's death in some other way. Maybe it's the death of a dream. Maybe it's the death and loss of a job or death of a friendship. Maybe it's the death of a child. Maybe it's a miscarriage. Um, There's lots of other ways that we deal with death, but I think another way that we sometimes interact with death is thinking about the way that death affects us and that our sin and our brokenness bring about death. So maybe you haven't experienced death in any of those other ways, but maybe you think that there's no way that Jesus could really love you with the stink of death that's around you because of your sin and your brokenness and the things that you've done. I talked to someone last week who was feeling that, didn't want to come to church because they were wrestling with death, but also wrestling because they hadn't come to church in a while. And so maybe you think there's no way that Jesus really would want to come close to me. I stink too much. And what you see Jesus demonstrate is that he's not afraid of coming close to the decay and death, whether that's physical decay and death or our own brokenness and sin. Jesus is willing to come really close But I want you to see something really remarkable because when Jesus comes to Lazarus, there's an emotion that he wrestles with, that he shows that we don't often wrestle with. And in verse 33, um, Jesus says, or it says, when Jesus saw uh, Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And in verse 38, it says that, again, Jesus was deeply moved again. And and oftentimes we think that he's just filled with emotion and he's sad because death is a sorrowful thing. But there's something more, I think, that is going on in this passage. And unfortunately, there's not really many translations that translate this word really well in verse 33 and verse 38. uh, the translations we typically get is something along the lines of he's moved in his spirit. The New King James Version says that, that he, was, he groaned. There's only two translations and they're kind of paraphrases that actually get what this passage is talking about. And that's the message and the New Living Translation. They both say that Jesus was angry. And literally this word in the Greek means that Jesus was mad. He was so filled with emotion and anger and the question is, why in the world, as Jesus stands in front of a grave, is he mad? And this, uh, the, the word in, in, classical, um, uh, in classical Greek is used of a horse snorting. So it's the idea that the nostrils are flaring. In fact, there's a couple other times that this very same word is used in the other Gospels. It's three other times. And every time it's used, it's talking about Jesus scolding or chiding somebody. He's angry with somebody. But no translators will translate it as he's angry because we're uncomfortable with Jesus being angry in the midst of grief and sorrow, right? But every single commentator I've read, I owe this originally to Tim Keller, but every commentator I've looked at says it is inexcusable to translate this other than Jesus is mad. The question is, what is Jesus mad at? There's two options. A lot of people say in verse 33 that Jesus is mad at Mary and her unbelief. Verse 33 says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her weeping, and remember this is uncontrollable weeping, he gets mad and his spirit is greatly troubled because they don't realize he's about to heal and resurrect Lazarus. I don't think that's actually a really accurate way of thinking about it because the same word is used in verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And so, in that verse, is Jesus mad at Lazarus because he doesn't have the amount of faith? Lazarus, who died, he didn't have enough faith that Jesus was going to heal him or raise him up. Why would Jesus be mad when he comes to the tomb? And I think this is what Jesus is mad at He's mad at death. He's mad that death has stolen somebody that he loves. And he sees that when he sees Mary weeping uncontrollably. And he sees that as he comes to the tomb, even knowing he's going to raise Lazarus to new life, he's still mad at death. One of The best definitions of anger I've ever heard is that anger is defending something you love. There's all sorts of times when we get angry defending things that we love that's not really something that we should be defending, whether it's our own pride or um, ourselves or other things that are much less than that. But there's sometimes we should be angry when something that we love is being attacked. And Jesus is mad at death because he realizes death is not just something that is natural. If, If we go back to Calvin and Hobbes, this is the last panel in the Calvin and Hobbes strips. And this is where Bill Watterson, I'm not sure if he's a Christian, I don't think he is, but he can't really work through it. And so Calvin is still wrestling with this, and and he says, mom says death is as natural as birth, and it's all part of the life cycle. She says, we don't really understand it, but there are many things we don't understand, and we just have to be the best, we have to do the best we can with the knowledge we have. And he says, I guess that makes sense. But that's not a full understanding. It's not a Christian understanding of death. Death is not just something that is natural. Jesus shows it right here because he is angry at death and he is angry at what death has done to his creation, to what he loves. Um, Alexander Smeeman in his book goes on later to say that Christ weeps at the grave of his friend and in so doing, he reveals his own struggle with death, his refusal to acknowledge it and to come to terms with it. Suddenly, death ceases to be a normal and natural fact. It appears as something foreign, as unnatural, as fearsome and perverted. And it is acknowledged as an enemy. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so when Jesus comes up to the grave of his friend, he is angry with death because death has stolen something that he loves. But there's more than that. And this is where we need to read the rest of the passage. So often we come to hear when we finish because Lazarus has been healed. He's been raised to a new life. And we think we get the whole of the passage but if we keep reading we'll see that there's more that's going on as Jesus is angry with death. Look at verse 43. And this is the question I wanna ask as we go through the rest of this. Is, is how does God really love me? When we read the rest of the passage, we see how much God really loves us and how much Jesus really loves us. Look at verse 45. Now many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performed many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. And look at verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. In verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. And this is what we need to recognize, is Jesus is not just angry at death This is not just a confrontation between him and death because of Lazarus, the person he loved who's about to die. But Jesus is realizing that by coming and interacting with Lazarus, by coming and consoling and sitting Shiva with uh, Martha and Mary, he is actually bringing about his own death. And the disciples knew that. In verse eight of chapter 11, the disciples said, why are you going to um, Judea? The Jews are seeking to stone him. And so this is the beauty of the gospel that we need to remember, brothers and sisters in Christ. As we wrestle with love and death, and we see the anger of Jesus about the death of his friend Lazarus, there's more going on here. Jesus is not just thinking about the death of Lazarus. He's thinking that in order for him to come to the funeral of Lazarus, he's gonna have to seal his own funeral a couple days later because John one through 10 is gonna take place for three years, but the last part of John, the last couple chapters are going to be seven days that lead up to Jesus going to the cross. And Jesus is very aware of this. And he realizes that in order to show his love for Lazarus, he's going to have to die himself. And this is the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus not only understands so much what it means to mourn and to interact with our suffering. He knows what it's like to die himself and experience the enemy himself. This is how much Jesus loves us. In his book, um, Lament for a Son, Nicholas Walterstoff says, instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. and I think that's a profound insight, but we can't just stop at the fact that Jesus shares our suffering. Yes, he knows what it's like to lose somebody he loves in Lazarus. Yes, he knows what it's like to die himself, but if we just stop there and don't remember that Jesus is the resurrection, then we don't have any hope. We have somebody who can empathize with us, and that's great and that's good. We have a God unlike any other God who can come close to us, but if he can't defeat death himself, if death has enough power to keep him in the grave, then we're all just as much hopeless. And all the love of Jesus can't do anything to save us. But this is where it's important we remember that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and life. And you can't read the last part of this passage where it talks about rolling a stone away, or it talks about all of the cloths that are around Lazarus, without thinking about the time when Jesus, seven days from now, actually a little bit more than that, is going to be raised from the dead and bring new life and resurrection. And it's ironic that Jesus, in verse 43, cries out to Lazarus with a loud voice saying, Lazarus, come out, bringing him to new life, when a couple days later, there's going to be that same phrase, the people are going to cry out with one great voice, but they're not calling out for the life, they are calling out for the death of Jesus, they're calling out, crucify him, crucify him. And so, when we interact with this tension between love and death, Jesus understands fully what it means. And Jesus comes so close that he experiences death himself. And this is the beauty of the gospel that we celebrate. We just celebrated in the Lord's Supper. We remind ourselves of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So, I don't know what your interaction with death is. I don't know if you've lost somebody that you love. I've lost people that I really love. And I'll be honest, there's sometimes I wish I could just give you an easy answer. I wish I could explain why my dad died or why my sister died. I wish I could f- explain why somebody you love has died. But Jesus does something even better than that. Rather than just trying to explain it, Jesus comes close and shows up even in the midst of death. And so when we wrestle with this question of love and death, I wanna point you to John 11. It's one of my favorite chapters. Because the answer is not just a pat answer about what's going to happen next. The answer is a person who knows what death is life like and who died so that we might have true life. And this is the beauty of the gospel. And I hope as you look at this passage, you see how much Jesus loves you. I'll be honest, sometimes I really wrestle with it. This week, I've really wrestled with it. I want my sister back, I want my dad back. But I know that Jesus loves them more than I love them. And I see this in John chapter 11 and I hope you see the love of Jesus wherever you are. Whether it's in your sadness, whether it's in your answers, whether you feel like you stink like death. Jesus loves you and he shows you how much God loves you. And I hope that you come to him and look to him. And so I wanna close by just reading a poem that I read for my sister um, at her funeral. It's a poem by John Dunn, one of my favorite poems. He says, Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. One short sleep past we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death thou shalt die. And this is how we wrestle with love and death. The promise that in Jesus Christ, because he went to the grave, death one day will die. And we live in this moment between when Jesus has started the defeat of death, he rose up out of the grave, and one day knowing that one day death will die. And in that midst of that, I encourage you, if you're wrestling with God's love, if you're wrestling with death, if you're wrestling with whatever it is you're wrestling with, look to Jesus who is the resurrection and the life and know that he will one day make everything sad come untrue and one day he will kill death and there will be no more tears. There will be no more death and there will just be life with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you. Um, and sometimes we, we wrestle with you, and I'm, I'm honest. Um, I want to be honest that I, I wrestle with you sometimes. I wrestle with this um, difficulty of death. I wrestle sometimes really believing that you love me when it seems like you're waiting, and I don't get why you haven't made all things new, why you haven't brought about that final resurrection yet. And yet this passage reminds me that you love me more than I can imagine. You love my dad, you love my sister, you love those who have gone before, who have died more than we can imagine. You love us so much that you would sense your son to die for us, that we might have life. And so we pray that we would look to you as we wrestle um, with the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, the problem of death and see a God who defeated death and one day will kill death so that we might have life in him. And we pray that as we sing this song in response that we would come to you, we come out of the tomb, we come out of whatever difficulty or storm that we are in, and recognize the beauty of what you have given us. We pray this all for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit, and for the glory of the Father.